This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself. episode 195 bienvenidos bitches buiti binafi and thank you so much for listening fruit loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and those who are othered and the victims because contrary to popular belief not all serial killers are straight cisgender able-bodied white dudes what yeah what (laughs) what exactly (laughs) these crimes rarely get any public attention because the news is racist allegedly and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a Black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. She's one of the good ones, y'all. <laughs> Fix our plate. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. All right, so uh, who are we talking about today, Beth? Well, today we're talking about Stanley Tukey Williams III. He was the co-founder of the Crips Gang. And he was convicted in 1981 for the murders of four people. All right. Well, before we get into it, how you doing? I'm doing great. We got some really good opportunities this week and uh, we're pretty stoked about it. Yeah, it was an exciting week. Yeah. Mostly because I got to see Beth in yeah. person. It was so cool. And see her face and like touch her face and like what else did I smell her hair and all kinds of really cool stuff so let's get into some a listener a layers well hello angels thank oh, you yeah oh, what's in that bag Beth I just got one okay wanted to say thank you to Dubious Danny for your five-star review. Thanks, Dubious Danny! And please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, join us on Patreon, where we have literally hundreds of hours of bonus content. And we have a video club for 12 plus patrons where you can interact with us in person. It's true. Yeah. So we have no new Patreons this week, but just a reminder, we love our supporters in any way, shape or form. And Dubious Danny, because I've missed singing songs for our Patreons, (laughs) I got a tune for you, Dubious Danny. Danny, 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 I can't let you go. So yeah, that's that. Let's take a quick break and get into the story when we come back.
Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast, Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an evergreen podcast, killer podcasts, and slow burn media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. And we're back. Remind us, Beth, who is our subject today? Our subject today is Stanley Tukey Williams III, co-founder of the Crips Gang, who was executed in 2005 for the murders of four people. Stanley, I can't figure out why (laughs) you killed people. Stanley. Now let's get into some... You really did miss singing, didn't you? I did. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we want to say rest in power to the victims. Albert Lewis Owens was 24. And the entire... uh, He basically killed a whole family. The Yang family. Sai Shai Yang was 67. Yen Yi Yang was 63. And Yi Chen Li was 43. And love and light to those who were left in the wake of this case and the victims. So now let's get into the setting. Take us there, Beth. Well, the setting is South Central Los Angeles, which we covered recently in the Grim Sleeper episode. So we're not going to recover everything we said during that episode. Wait, we're not going to repeat everything we didn't just cut and paste? No, no. (laughs) (laughs) But as we discussed in that episode, Los Angeles was segregated from the beginning due to redlining. That's right. And the Black population doubled during World War II when the need for workers in the aerospace industry and other wartime jobs caused the U.S. government to make it illegal for government contractors to discriminate in hiring. But there were a few places that they could live. And by 1940, approximately 70% of the Black population in Los Angeles was confined to the Central Avenue Corridor. The neighborhood that is now known as South Central became an umbrella term for Black Los Angeles. After World War II and long before the arrival of the Bloods and the Crips, the expansion of the Black population was accompanied by a significant expansion of gangs. Early street clubs formed as a reaction to the violence directed towards Black people and Latinx people. And I wanted to mention the definition of gang is different depending on who you're talking to or about. Right. But the Bloods and the Crips are generally referred to as a gang. But, you know, me and Beth and and Minnie could be a gang, right? Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <but> <laughs> a gang you know, of three. A, a gang of three. Exactly. A gang of three going to go hang out and do something somewhere. Right. So anyway, I think the word gang has a really negative connotation. But again, I only say that to say the definition varies. But here's how we're using it. A gang of people who engage in 
violent behavior and criminal activities. Yes. And I think the early gangs were not nearly as violent as the modern gangs are. Yeah. I mean, I imagine when I think of gangs, I think of um, the dancing gangs in What's that movie? West Side Story. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Those, that's my kind of gang. The dance way they fighting. sing and dance. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so as the population increased, white people organized gangs that would seek out Black and Latinx people and harass them or beat them up. And so, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the largest of these gangs were the, I'm sorry to say this. Thank you for apologies. Yeah. Spook hunters. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. Yeah. During the 1940s, the Ku Klux Klan also emerged in L.A., and the first Black and Latino gangs were formed in response to these white gangs. Yeah. So they they needed to protect themselves. Absolutely. That's what gangs were all about, is protecting the block in the beginning. And I, you know, the KKK is a gang. Yeah. There's reports that the L.A. County sheriffs have several gangs who kill people as well. So it's just, again, the negativity seems to only be geared towards black, black people. and brown gangs. Yeah. yeah. So these gangs acted as protection for black and Latinx neighborhoods. Incidents such as the Zutsu riots in which white Marines attack Latinx man and other people of color led to a higher degree of organization in the gangs of both black people and Latinx people. And golly, I didn't realize that's what that song was about. Now I yep. hate it. after the watts riots of 1965 white flight led to much of south la and the surrounding areas becoming mostly black or latinx this also led to some of the gangs beginning to fight each other according to elijah anderson professor of sociology and african-american studies at yale inner city black america is often stereotyped as a place of random violence (laughs) it's terrible there but in fact Violence in the inner city is regulated through an informal but well-known code of the street. The inclination to violence springs from life circumstances among the inner city poor. The lack of jobs that pay a living wage, racism, the fallout from drug use and drug trafficking all result in alienation and lack of hope for the future. The despair of living in such an environment places young people at special risk of falling victim to aggressive behavior. Welcome to Culture Corner with Beth and Wendy. When I was researching for this show that we're recording right now, I heard a story about a man who joined a gang. And he said when he was a kid, his mom went to go sign him up for Cub Scouts. And all of the white families objected because he was black. Oh, my God. And he turned to gangs because wow. he had nothing. He, he didn't have an opportunity. He, he wanted a, a group of people to belong with and it's, they exactly. rejected him. Exactly. Yeah. Just because of his skin color. That's awful. It is. Again, I hate it here. May I be excused? <laughs> the, <laughs> the code of the streets is actually a cultural adaptation to a lack of faith in the police and the judicial system which produces a defensive demeanor of aggression. And it appears as aggression, but it's just Black people defending themselves. It looks aggressive when it's not a white body doing it. So the police are seen as representing the dominant white society and not caring about inner city residents. But when called, they may not respond or may even arrest you. So many residents feel they must be prepared to take measures to defend themselves and their loved ones. In these circumstances, parents who love their children may even parent harshly to prepare their children for the world. Parents can be quite aggressive with the children, yelling at or striking them for the least little infraction of the rules. 
This response teaches children that to solve any kind of interpersonal problem, one must quickly resort to hitting or other violent behavior. And Wendy, you've talked a lot about in the past how Uh the reasons why their black parents are so strict. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because a mistake could kill you. Yes. A mistake in public, not listening to police instructions, not listening to anybody in authorities instructions or any, you know, white person who has deputized themselves. If you don't comply, you could die. And that's a big reason for the harsh parenting. And Did I already mention I hated hair? Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) maybe once. (laughs) So on the streets, children play in groups that often become the source of their primary social bonds. Very important stuff. And they learn to fight. Even small children test one another, pushing and shoving and are ready to hit other children. In turn, they are readily hit by other children and the child who is toughest prevails. In almost every case, the victor is the person who physically won the altercation, and this person often enjoys the esteem and respect of onlookers. These experiences reinforce the lessons the children have learned at home. Might makes right, and toughness is a virtue, while humility is not. It's a tough world out there, right? Yeah, it's a vicious cycle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I would say that I do think that that is changing. I believe in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Right. This is not long after the civil rights movement when black people basically got their full rights 40, 50 years ago. Right. Right. And so I think that now the generations that are having children, myself included, are not parenting harshly because we see how much it fucks us all up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So looking capable of taking care of oneself as a form of self-defense is important. This is geared mainly to deter aggression. To avoid a physical attack, you must send a message that you are capable of violence when the situation requires it. People often feel constrained not only to stand up and at least attempt to resist during an assault, but also to seek revenge after a successful assault on their person. Many feel that it is acceptable to risk dying over the principle of respect. Mm. Such a cavalier attitude toward death grows out of a very limited view of life. Many are uncertain about how long they're going to live and believe they could die violently at any time. That is so real. Like, I pray every day that my son gets to grow old past 25. And it's not guaranteed, especially for young Black people. The toughening up one experiences in prison can actually enhance one's reputation on the streets. So the system loses influence and has little effect. So that's the setting. Now we're going to get into the early life. Hit it, Beth. Stanley Tukey Williams III was born on December 29th, 1953 in Shreveport, Louisiana, to a 17-year-old mother and a father who abandoned the family when Williams was one year old. In 1959, his mother, Louisiana, feeling trapped by poverty, took Tukey on a Greyhound bus to California and they settled in an apartment in south-central Los Angeles. A latchkey kid who found the street, quote, more interesting than being at home, unquote, Tukey began wandering the neighborhood. As the new kid on the block, he had to learn quickly how to defend himself from neighborhood bullies and was often thrown into the middle of physical conflicts. Immersed in a culture of violence and drugs without a strict parental influence, Tukey grew up idolizing criminals and, quote, mimicking pimps and drug dealers, unquote. During his early teens, he was paid a few dollars to water feed and patch up dogs that had been mauled in illegal dogfights. 
The betting progressed to fights between young boys, and Tuki was paid to box other young boys to unconsciousness. The experiences hardened him, but he kept the horrors he saw and performed from his mother. Tuki rarely attended school, believing that he could do better in the streets. Through fighting, he made several friends with whom he frequently stole and made quick money as a boot black. And I had to look that up. It's just a what shoe shiner. Oh, shoe shiner. okay. Yeah. I thought it was racist. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, kind of is. It kind of I mean, is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where it's like, oftentimes I come across this where I don't know for sure if it's racist, but it sure feels but like it. But it feels racist. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the jobs that Black people could do, you know. Right, right. And would be okay, you know. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, one of his new friends was Raymond Washington, who Tukey met in 1969. At the age of 16, Raymond Washington formed what would become known as the Crips, a group initially founded to protect the neighborhood from other large gangs. They later became the Eastside Crips. In 1971, Tukey Williams joined with Raymond Washington, starting what would later be known as the Westside Crips. After much of the Black Panther power base was eliminated during the tumultuous 60s, and as other social and political groups became ineffective agents for social change in Los Angeles, Washington, who was too young to participate in the Panther movement during the 60s, but absorbed much of the rhetoric, fashioned his quasi-political organization after the Black Panthers. That makes so much sense. We talked yeah. about, uh, I think, in a pretty recent episode about how there was so little hope after all of these Black leaders were killed. Yeah. That it would be another reason to turn towards a gang. Right. Washington also admired an older gang that remained active throughout the 60s called The Avenues, led by Craig and Robert Munson. He decided to name his new organization the Baby Avenues, a.k.a. the Avenue Crips, to represent a new generation. Yeah, it was actually the Avenue Cribs. Cribs? Like, uh, oh. Yeah. Avenue, oh, like, like Baby Cribs. Babies. Oh. Baby Cribs. Yeah. <laughs> or baby, it, baby Avenues. Yeah. Oh. And then it eventually turned into the Crips. I'm not really sure. Like there's a bunch of different theories about how it changed, but Mm -hmm. it did change. And I I don't know why. (laughs) Oh, well, look at that. Hey, do you know about Crip walking? I saw something about it, but I don't know what it is. Oh, it's a dance. It's a, oh, a, dance, a dance, a form. Yeah, so it is, they do have dancing gangs. It's crip walking. Is, <laughs> crip uh, walking. <laughs> yeah, the, and and Snoop Dogg does it. You can YouTube videos of people crip walking. But for a while, it was a really really trendy dance that people who huh. were not crips would engage in, myself included. Interesting. But technically, my understanding is that they are like doing gang signs with their feet. Don't quote me. Actually, don't fact check me on that. But it's a dance. Crip walking. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So Washington's initial intent was to continue the revolutionary ideology of the 60s and to act as community leaders and to aggressively protect their local neighborhoods. This is all good things. Yes. Yes. When the police won't do it or any other authorities won't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Let's let's. We got mines. I got mine. (laughs) Right. The revolutionary vision, unfortunately, did not endure. Mm. Because of immaturity and lack of leadership, Raymond Washington and his group 
were never able to apply their vision of neighborhood protection into a broader progressive strategy. They were immediately met with conflict by other neighborhoods, and from 1969 to 1972, neighborhoods began to clash that challenged the Crip identity, leading to a long and bitter rivalry with the Bloods. The Crips began to splinter in the 1970s, and then the Crips would not only fight with the Bloods, but also many Crip sets would fight each other. The original Crips consisted of approximately 30 members. In 1972, there were about 8 to 10 Crip neighborhoods, which grew to about 45 in 1978. Mm. In 1972, the Crips were being blamed for a series of crimes, including the beating death of a 16-year-old boy outside the Hollywood Palladium and the murder of a pimp in South Los Angeles. By 1979, the Crips had evolved into a statewide organization, and Williams and Washington lost control of the group. Today, the Crips is a collection of structured and unstructured gangs that have adopted a common gang culture. Crips membership is estimated to be 30,000 to 35,000. Most members are Black males from the Los Angeles metropolitan area. There are also large national-level Crips gangs that operate in 221 cities and 41 states. Wow! The main, yeah, that's a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the main source of income for Crips gangs is the street-level distribution of drugs, but the gangs are also involved in other criminal activity, such as assault, auto theft, burglary, and homicide. According to state prison files, Tukey had juvenile convictions for doing drugs <laughs> and auto theft in 1970, and he was sent to a youth detention camp. He attended John C. Fremont High School, but was expelled in 1971. He later spent two years in junior college. So to go from being expelled, and they said that he didn't go to school very often, to later spend two years in being junior in college. college. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty impressive. He must have been pretty smart. I think he was very smart. And we'll learn later how smart he was. Okay. So Williams took up bodybuilding and bulked up to 300 pounds. Whoa! Developing biceps that measured 22 inches around. Mm. Yeah. Did you have you seen pictures? I have seen pictures of him. Yeah. He uh, I would say a snack. (laughs) He was Bulked up for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's how Wendy likes them. Sorry. (laughs) Very inappropriate. I'm sorry. (laughs) At some point, he met a woman named Bonnie, who was reportedly the first female to get into the Crips. Mm. The pair later married and had two children, Stanley Little Tukey Williams, the fourth, and Trayvon Williams. Some sources say he also had a child named Julian with a woman named Mildred. And Julian was raised by a maternal grandmother and maternal aunt in San Diego. Other sources say that Bonnie was Julian's mother, but we don't know the veracity of this. Yeah, don't know. At the time of the murders in 1979, Williams had no adult felony convictions. That year, Los Angeles led the nation in gang-related homicides. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder 
In-House 2, a new podcast from Crowd Network. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. So now we are going to get into the timeline. Splish, splash, let's go. This is all information from court records. So... According to court records, at approximately 10.30 p.m. on February 27, 1979, Williams went to Alfred, a.k.a. Blackie Coward's house. The two went to the home of James Garrett, where Williams was staying at the time, and Williams went inside. Returning with a sawed-off shotgun, he was accompanied by a man named Daryl, who was wearing a brown corduroy jacket. The three men made several stops, including one to obtain Sherm's. Sherms are PCP-laced cigarettes. Oh, I thought it was a person named Sherm. <laughs> Whoa, okay. <laughs> they all shared a Sherm. <laughs> okay. <Sounds> so funny. <laughs> it does. And then picked up Tony Sims, who was dressed in a green jogging suit and a cap. Williams shared a second Sherm with Coward and Sims and asked Sims if he knew where he could make money in Pomona. Witnesses later testified that around 4 a.m. on February 28th, they saw four black men in a station wagon drive to a liquor store near the 7-Eleven. Two of the men got out and went into the store. One was wearing a green jogging suit and a beanie. (laughs) That's so 1979. I know, right? (laughs) Yeah. The other wore a brown coat. I keep thinking of uh, Dynamite. What was that show? (laughs) What was that? Is that the Jeffersons? No, it was uh, good times. Good, good times. times. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Dynamite. <laughs> oh, man. We need to make that a drop. I'll work on it later. <laughs> the foursome eventually went to a 7-Eleven store on Whittier Boulevard in Whittier, east of L.A. The attendant, Albert Lewis Owens, was out sweeping the parking lot. Sims and Daryl went into the store, followed by Albert, Williams, and Coward. Coward later testified that he saw no one with a weapon except Williams, who approached Albert and told him to keep walking. By the way, I went to college in Southern California, and uh, we would uh, describe Whittier as shittier than everywhere else. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> there is a Whittier in Alaska, too. Oh, there is. Yeah. So I went on an Alaskan cruise once with my mom and my sister. Fancy pants yeah, over here. <laughs> so we took a bus from, uh, where did we land? Anchorage, I think. Mm-hmm. And the bus took us to Whittier, which is on the other side of a mountain. And you go through a tunnel to mm-hmm. get there. And mm-hmm. they would say that uh, everything is shittier in Whittier. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's true. It's funny because it's true. Um, so while one of the men emptied the cash register drawer and took $120, Williams took Albert into the back room of the store with Williams and Coward following him. Williams told Albert to lie down and he complied. Williams then shot out a security monitor and shot Albert twice in the back with a shotgun. Mm. Coward did not see the shooting, but heard a gun being loaded, heard a shot and glass breaking, then two more shots. The group then returned to Sims' house where the money was divided. When Sims asked Williams why he had shot Albert, Williams said that he did not want to leave any witnesses. He also said the shotgun shells could not be traced and that he had retrieved a few of them. Is that true? I don't know. Hmm. Coward saw Williams later that morning at the home of Williams's brother. He stated Williams told his brother, quote, you should have heard the way he sounded when I shot him, unquote. Ooh. Williams then made growling noises and laughed hysterically for a number of minutes. Oh, my God. A monster. Yeah. On March 10th, 1979, Samuel Coleman and Williams went to the showcase bar where Coleman remained until it closed around 6 a.m. Coleman last remembered seeing Williams at about 2.30 a.m. Prosecutors say that in the early morning hours of March 11th, 1979, Williams, accompanied by another man, broke down the door and entered the Brookhaven Motel in South Central Los Angeles. Once inside, Williams shot to death three members of an immigrant family from Taiwan who owned and operated the motel. Yenny Lang, 76, his wife, Tsai Tsai Yang, 63, and their visiting daughter, Yi Chen Lin, 43. That's awful. Like, <laughs> it is so opposite of what he turns into later. Yeah. Right. Like, right. And, and so what, and, and really what it started out as just protecting people in the neighborhood to doing this kind of thing. Yeah. 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 It really got perverted. Yeah. So Robert Yang and his family owned and lived in the Brookhaven Motel on South Vermont Street in Los Angeles. About 5 a.m. on March 11, 1979, Robert woke to the sound of a woman screaming and then gunshots. A few minutes later, he left his bedroom and saw that the door separating the motel office from the living quarters was open. It appeared the door had been forced open from the outside. He discovered his father, mother, and sister had all been fatally wounded by gunshot fire. The cash drawer was open and empty. That must have been oh. horrifying. Yeah. The police found two shotgun shell casings at the scene. The next day, Williams told Samuel Coleman that he had robbed and killed someone on Vermont Street. Williams said that he had obtained approximately $50 from the robbery. Gosh, that's nothing. Yeah. $50 from the robbery murder and was going to use it to buy PCP. So now we're going to get into the investigation and the arrest. What do you got, Beth? Williams kept some of his possessions at James Garrett's house and stayed there approximately five days a week. Early on the morning of March 13, 1979, Williams told James Garrett and his wife Esther that he had heard of the killing of some Chinese people on Vermont Street. Williams said that he did not know how the murders occurred. What? Who, me? <laughs> but thought that the murderers were professionals oh, because they yeah. had left no shells or witnesses at the scene. Okay. <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. Williams also stated that he heard that the killings had taken place at 5 a.m. and that two men had knocked down the door and taken $600. So it went hmm. from $50 to $600. Yeah, but the, hmm. that's that, um, you know, we talked about in the setting about 
being like tough and right. the appearance of toughness. Right. And that's what that looks like. So do you think it would have been embarrassing to just take $50? I do. I do yeah. all of that just for $50. Like, yeah, I would be so ashamed. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't but, yeah. do that. But I'm just saying like, you know, all of that three for 50 lives bucks. lost for $50. Yeah. yeah. Stupid. Mm-hmm. Williams later spoke to James Garrett a second time about the Brookhaven Motel murders and robbery. Williams then started making statements about the murder with inside knowledge about the crimes, which had yet to be released to the public. Uh-oh. He said he had heard the murder occurred at 5 a.m. and that two men knocked down the door and had taken $600. Williams then said he heard the guy lying on the couch was blown away. A woman at the register was shot twice and another woman was also shot. Williams described the incident saying, quote, after the big guy knocked the door down, he went in the motel and there was a guy laying on the couch and he blew him away, unquote. Mm. James mm. Garrett later testified that Williams then indicated that he was the quote unquote big guy. Oh, my. He told on himself. Yep. <laughs> Esther Garrett confirmed the statements made by her husband. She later testified that Williams told them that the Brookhaven Motel murders were using the money taken from the cash register to buy juice or PCP and that they had picked up the shotgun shells so that there would be no evidence for the police. Williams also told Esther Garrett outside the presence of her husband that he had committed the murders with his brother-in-law. Williams later talked about committing another motel robbery. Another one? Another Hang on one. a second. Another one. <laughs> And Garrett tried to talk him out of it, stating that there were too many people who stayed at the hotel. Williams then told Garrett, quote, no problem. I'll blow them away like I blew them away in the motel, unquote. Wow. Williams also expressed to Garrett the idea of killing Alfred Blackie Coward because he felt that Coward might inform against him. Wow. Gosh, he's so, like, callous and... Like human like, life eager is, to kill people. I yeah. I wow. So the fact that Williams had killed four innocent people in twelve days apparently shocked even his associates because numerous tips were received from the community. The detective stated that some of Williams' co-conspirators told them that he never permitted robbery victims to live to become witnesses against him. On March 15th, Williams was arrested by police and later questioned by Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department detectives. Tony Sims was also taken into custody on March 23rd and made a statement to the police. The shotgun owned by Williams was recovered and matched ballistically to both murders after a first test revealed that it didn't match. A firearms expert later testified that one of the shells could have been fired only from a weapon identified as having been purchased by Williams in 1974. On May 3, 1979, the state of California charged Williams with four counts of first-degree murder, three counts of robbery with the use of a firearm, one count of kidnapping, and eight special circumstances of robbery, murder, and multiple murder. Williams steadfastly maintained his innocence. But he told everybody he did it. That he did it, <laughs> he did yeah. It. What? In August of 1979, Raymond Washington the original founder of the Eastside Crips was murdered as he approached a car of people he knew. Ten years after founding the Crips, Washington had little to no control over the gangs. But because he was the founder, he was often blamed for their actions. In the early 1970s, he was well-respected as a strong fighter. But by the end of the 70s, as many new Crip factions started to splinter off, growing resentment was building against him. 
As he approached the car, a passenger shot him once, killing him. Mm. Mm. His murder was blamed on the Hoover faction of the Crips, which led to a war between the Hoover and other Crip factions. No one was ever arrested for his murder. So now we're going to get into the trial. On February 10th, 1981, Williams went to trial. No fingerprints, blood, or clothing at either crime scene connected Williams to the shootings. The main physical evidence against him was a shell casing at the motel, matched to Williams' shotgun by a sheriff's expert whose testing methods Williams' lawyer called junk science. The chief eyewitness was Alfred Coward, who took part in the 7-Eleven robbery and was given immunity from prosecution. He testified that Williams had forced Owens into a storage room at gunpoint, shot the clerk, and later laughed about it, imitating the sounds Owens made as he died. That's cold. Yeah, super cold. Also, Coward, what an unfortunate last name. Yeah. <laughs> James Garrett, yeah. Esther Garrett, and Samuel Coleman also testified, saying that he confessed to the killings. George Oglesby, an inmate housed in the same cell block as Williams, testified that Williams admitted to shooting a man, a woman, and a child in the course of robbing a motel. Oglesby also testified in detail about a plan Williams allegedly concocted to escape from jail during a bus transfer from jail to court. Tony Sims did not testify at Williams' trial, but implicated him at his own trial for participating in the murder of Albert Owens, which resulted in a life sentence. Four witnesses provided testimony identifying Williams as the perpetrator of the Brookhaven Motel murders and robbery. On the defense's side, a woman named Beverly McGowan testified that she and Williams had dined and spent the night together on the night of Owen's murder. Fred Hollowell, Williams' stepfather, testified that he saw Williams at the Showcase Bar on March 11, 1979, the morning of the Brookhaven Motel murders and robbery. Eugene Riley, an inmate in the same cell block as Williams, testified that he saw Williams in the parking lot of the Showcase Bar at about 5 a.m. on March 11th. Riley said that he gave Williams a ride home at approximately 5.30 a.m. and that Williams was smoking a sherm at the time. <laughs> I am so, like, delighted that I learned a new term, sherm. Sure. Joe, I wonder where that comes from. I do, sherm. Sure. I'm going to have to It's Google angel it, dust, right? Uh, yeah, PCP. Angel dust, PCP. And in a cigarette, specifically. Yeah. Doing drugs. <laughs> well... Joseph McFarland, another inmate in Williams' cell block, provided testimony impeaching Ogilby's credibility. McFarland stated that Ogilby was a well-known jailhouse rat and that other inmates gave Ogilby false information because they knew him to be a government informant. Through the use of cross-examination, defense counsel also brought out the motivations of the prosecution's witness to lie. On March 13, 1981, the all-white jury returned guilty verdicts against Williams on four counts of first-degree murder and two counts of robbery using a firearm. Mm. Williams was seen mouthing a threat to the jury after the guilty Ooh. verdict. Oh, my. Yeah, not good. <laughs> mm -mm. Not helping your case here. <laughs> no, not much at all. <laughs> and on April 15, 1981, he was sentenced to death. Williams and his supporters who maintained his innocence argued that he was railroaded by witnesses who lied in exchange for leniency in their own criminal cases, by a faulty ballistics test, and by a prosecutor who engaged in racist tactics. 
I don't doubt that. I also think it's disgusting that it was an all-white jury. Yeah. But anyway, specifically, he removed three black people from the jury and told jurors that seeing Williams in court was like observing a Bengal tiger in a zoo. So an animal. A zoo animal. Of, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Throughout the 1980s and early 1990s, Alfred Blackie Coward was arrested for nearly a dozen felonies that prosecutors declined to prosecute. But in 1996, after another felony arrest, Blackie was deported to his native Canada. Whoa, Blackie's from Canada? Blackie's oh from Canada. Oh my gosh, that's a surprise. <laughs> what a twist. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> the only Black people I know in Canada is Drake. Anyway, in less than three years, he was arrested for the murder of an 80-year-old man. Blackie denied his involvement in the 1999 homicide, but surveillance video captured the brutal beating. Blackie was sentenced to 12 years. He died in his early 60s after he was released from Canadian prison. Williams arrived at San Quentin's death row on April 20th, 1981. Williams did not initially adjust well to life in prison. During his early years, he remained a violent man, assaulting inmates and guards and spending six years in solitary confinement from 1988 to 1994. That's brutal. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that is brutal. But when you think about what he did, yeah. you know. Right. I don't know what to say, but Williams later said that during the time he was in solitary confinement, he began reading widely and reflecting on his life, and he resolved to do something about gang violence. In April of 1993, and that is after the riots, Williams taped a message from prison that was broadcast to Los Angeles gang members at a peace summit. In 1996, Williams, with co-author Barbara Becknell, published the first of a series of eight anti-gang books aimed at children called Gangs and Wanting to Belong. He spoke regularly from prison to youths and educators and posted a model peace protocol for gangs on his website in 2000, which supporters say was widely used. Wow. Assertions by Williams supporters of success for his peacemaking efforts drew skepticism from some researchers who found no decline in killings after the peace summits. But many individual testimonials from youths said that Williams changed their lives. In 1997, Williams wrote an apology for his role in creating the Crips Street Gang, saying, quote, I am no longer diseducated, disease educated. I am no longer part of the problem. Thanks to the Almighty, I am no longer sleepwalking through life, unquote. In 2001, Williams published a memoir of his years behind bars on San Quentin's death row intended to warn kids away from following his life of crime. In 2002, Williams was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in recognition for his work against gang violence. That, what a... That's wild. What, yeah. what a turnaround. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although he did not win the award, many supporters spoke out in favor of the former gang member's transformation into a social reformer. He would be nominated for the award six times in total. Holy shitballs. That is remarkable. Wow. Yeah. In 2004, his book, Blue Rage, Black Redemption, a memoir, was published. The book was written with the intention to warn kids away from following William's life of crime. His story was also turned into a TV movie, Redemption, the Stan Tukey Williams story, starring Jamie Foxx. Yeah. yeah. By the way, thoughts and prayers to Jamie Foxx. He's in the hospital right now. Oh, so really? What happened? Stroke. <gasps> he had a stroke, oh, no. his daughter said. So oh, he's no. having some health issues and he's an amazing actor. <laughs> oh, I hope he hope he recovers. I hope me too. Me too. Yeah. 
Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. On appeal, Williams's lawyer, Verna Weifold, told the state's high court that allowing the defense to re-examine and test the evidence, quote, will show that the prosecution's case rested on a substandard police investigation, unquote. She said a sheriff's deputy who examined a shotgun shell casing found at the motel reported that his first test was inconclusive and then was told by the L.A. County prosecutor to run another test. She said the finding that the shells matched William's gun was junk science at best. Weffold said that the prosecution had no other physical evidence against Williams, but relied instead on, quote, the testimony of criminal informants who had an incentive to lie not only to obtain benefits, but to hide the truth of their involvement in these crimes, unquote. State and federal courts rejected each of his appeals. Although federal judges described the evidence as less than airtight, and a three-judge federal panel said he might be a worthy candidate for clemency. On October 11, 2005, the U.S. Supreme Court denied Williams' petition for the high court to review the lower court's rulings in his case. In December of 2005, the California Supreme Court rejected a request to reopen Williams' case because of allegations that shoddy forensics connects him to at least three of the gunshot murders. On December 8, 2005, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, get to the chopper, <laughs> who reportedly met Williams in the 1970s while working out on Venice Beach, <laughs> held a clemency hearing to help decide whether Williams' sentence should be commuted to life in prison. In a behind-closed-doors meeting, Williams' defenders and prosecutors each had 30 minutes to plead their case to the governor. On December 12, 2005, Governor Schwarzenegger denied Williams' bid for clemency. In a written statement, he said, quote, The facts do not justify overturning the jury's verdict or the decisions of the courts in this case, unquote. I remember when this all went down. Went down, me, yeah. yeah. me and my husband, me and old Whitey and old Whitey's friends smoking hookah in our house talking about Tukey Williams. And I was like, no, he should not be put to death. He's totally changed his life around. But nobody yeah. agreed with me. And now they I have didn't. a podcast. So there. No. <laughs> <laughs> huh. Were they all white? No. Some of them huh. were. But there was Asian, Southeast oh, Asian. All kinds of people. All kinds of people. Yeah. Huh. So to his supporters, Williams was a man who had turned his life around in prison, writing eight children's books denouncing gang life. But to others, Williams was a murderer who co-founded the Violent Crips gang and unleashed a crime wave that changed Southern California. Williams said that he was a changed man and of value to society because of his anti-gang writings from behind bars. Schwarzenegger noted that Williams had never apologized for the murders. Williams maintained that he did not commit them. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how he went from bragging to claiming yeah. his innocence. For innocence, decades. like he never admitted to committing yeah. any murders. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Williams was executed on December 13th, 2005. He spent his last hours in a 45 square foot death watch cell. 
where he was given a new set of clothes, jeans, and a blue work shirt to change into before being escorted to the death chamber. While in the cell, Williams spoke by phone with his attorneys as the governor and courts rejected last-minute requests for a stay. He had his visitors brought into his cell one at a time and gave them his formal goodbyes, then gathered them all as a group and addressed them all. Todd Slosek, a spokesperson for the prison, said, quote, He has been very calm, very quiet, and very respectful of the staff, unquote. Outside the prison gates, about 2,000 death penalty protesters prayed for a last-minute reprieve, while a few motorists shouted from their car windows, Kill him! Uh. Whoa! He offered no resistance as he was strapped to the gurney in the death chamber. But according to reporters who witnessed the execution, he appeared exasperated as prison officials hooked him up to the intravenous tubes. One reporter said it took 36 minutes from when Williams was brought into the chamber for him to be pronounced dead. At one point, Williams looked around and appeared to ask, quote, you doing that right? Unquote. Whoa. Yeah. So the state murdered him. And right. I, you know, who I don't think you can. Uh, uh, what's that? Two wrongs don't make it right. No. Williams 51 was pronounced dead at 1235 a.m. There were no last words. A total of 39 people watched Williams die, including a few he invited to be witnesses. Three of them raised their fists in salute as Williams looked at them and afterward yelled, quote, the state of California just killed an innocent man, unquote. Laura Owens, stepmother of one of Williams' murder victims, burst into tears at the outburst. Williams was the 12th person to be put to death in California since the state resumed executions in 1992 after a 25-year suspension. Williams wanted his ashes to be scattered in Africa. After a large and public funeral in Los Angeles, his ashes were taken to South Africa and spread in a lake in Soweto's Tokoza Park. Barbara Becknell, his co-author, was named by Williams as the executor and sole recipient of his estate, and she made the arrangements. Huh. Not his kids as executors? Not his kids, no. And there was a a fight about that afterwards, but it was Mm -hmm. denied and she got his estate. Okay. Williams and Bonnie divorced in 1984. In 1994, Williams' son Stanley, little Tukey Williams Jr., a neighborhood crip was found guilty of shooting a 20-year-old woman to death in an alley off Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood when he was 18. He was sentenced to 16 years in prison for second-degree murder. Williams' other son, Trayvon Williams, is a reformed gang member who, after his father's death, had dedicated his life to extending his father's legacy of redemption by promoting Williams's protocol for peace. At the time, Trayvon was a married father who owned a home and worked for a social services agency in the Los Angeles area. And I tried to find what he's up to today, but I couldn't find anything. That's the last I know. Oh, but that's uplifting nonetheless. Yes, yes, it is. Trayvon was the only family member who spoke at the funeral. He, quote, brought the church to its feet, unquote. Amen. I just get it. <laughs> so when he promised to teach Schwarzenegger about redemption, he said, quote, I feel it's my duty to go on a worldwide campaign to show that redemption is real, unquote. So now we're going to get into our takeaways. What do you think about this, Beth? Well, obviously, his childhood and social environment were huge factors in what he did, Mm -hmm. you know, the murders. Yep. Yep. We have talked a lot in the past about why kids join gangs and protection is a big part of it. The Mm -hmm. socialization from the gangs encourages the kids to become tough. Mm -hmm. And I think it's probable 
that Williams did kill these people, even though he proclaimed his innocence. I think think he probably did it. Mm -hmm. But if he didn't, let's say he didn't do it. Mm -hmm. Bragging about doing it and joking about it would make sense if he wanted to look tough. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, but... The people that he was with when the crimes were committed, they would know whether or not he did it. And I mm-hmm. don't know what they would think if if they knew he was lying. Wouldn't that make him? They would call him out on it. Pathetic. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think I'm pretty sure he did it. And he seemed to have told a lot of people <laughs> that he was yeah. responsible <laughs> to the point where people are like, whoa, bro. Yeah. This, you, you're wilding out. <laughs> I mean, they were calling the police. That's nuts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So he was really young when these crimes were committed. And Mm -hmm. I do think it's possible that he came to view his actions as wrong. Mm -hmm. And I believe he wanted to atone for it. Mm -hmm. I do wish he would have admitted his guilt. Yeah. I think that was probably maybe why the governor did not. Yeah, that is absolutely why he didn't Mm -hmm. grant. Yeah. I mean, he could have spent the rest of his life in prison. Yeah, they didn't have to execute him. They didn't have to execute him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't believe in the death penalty. No, me neither. But if I did, Uh I don't think he was a good candidate, you know? How come? Because he was actually trying to do something to right his wrongs. Um, And isn't that what we want from the justice system? What's what's the purpose? I mean, they're always talking about... You did it again. Yes. I think a life sentence allowing him to continue his anti-gang work would have been a better choice for for him and for society. You know? Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yes to all of those things. You know, I was thinking about the time frame, the timing, right? He's born in the 50s in the South, migrates to L.A. like a lot of Black people with his mom. And around the 60s, there was so much hope in the Black community because of the civil rights movement and the Black Panther movement and the Voting Rights Act. All all these things were good. And then authorities, the FBI killed all of our leaders. Right. (laughs) And there was no hope. And it makes so much sense in my mind why young people at the time turned to gangs. And this is such a, I was so excited to cover this case because it just encapsulates the idea of redemption and justice. And what does that look like? You know, both things can be, many things can be true at once that he did this really bad thing, but did he turn his life around? Did he become a better person while he was incarcerated? That is exactly what we're what, what we the want goal is. prison right. to do, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I just think the state murdered him and they did not need to. And I think that is horrible. And that's all I got. Okay. Okay. So now we're going to get to how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. We just recorded our news episode and there have been so many mass shootings. This is America and they're probably not going to stop for a while. But what is really weird is that even at my job and at my kid's school, there are trainings and drills 
on what to do in the event of a mass shooting. This is the world we live in right now, right? And the tips are to run, hide, and fight if you have to. If you find yourself in the unfortunate situation of being in the throes of a mass shooting. So that's all I got today. Okay. Anything to add? Nothing? Nothing. Mind-blowing, but uh, (laughs) that's that's what I got. (laughs) Okay. So run, hide, and fight if you have to. First, you should run. Next, you should hide. And if you can't do either of those things as a last resort, fight like hell. Okay. And that's that's it. That's it. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) Yes. And I hate it here. So now we're going to get into the (laughs) shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. I just wanted to shout out 1000% me growing up mixed on HBO. It's uh, by W. Kamau Bell. And he started by interviewing his own kids who are black and their mother is white. And it's about multiracial children and their families sharing their joys and their struggles of growing up mixed. And it's only an hour. I will be watching it with my kids, but I watched it last week and I just I loved it. I loved hearing these young people talk about who they are. I'm just a thousand percent me is what they said. So it's really great on HBO and Love and Death on HBO. Yeah, I've been watching that. What the heck? Yeah. Oh my God. I just (laughs) finished episode. This lady, she she chopped this other lady up uh, with with an axe. axe. Yeah. Like, whoa. So this is like the third third version of this story that I know of. And Candy is another one. Candy's another one. And then there was Jessica Beale. Yep. Justin Timberlake's wife. Yep. And then there was another one. And I don't know when it was made, maybe in the 80s or 90s. Mm -hmm. I don't remember what it was called. (laughs) But it was one of the, it always stuck in my head. It was like a mini series on television. What? (laughs) Back in the day. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it always stuck in my head, this story. It's wild. It is fucking nuts. Yeah. She has an affair with this dude. And then the wife finds out and is like, you can't have him. And she didn't go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> she, yeah, it's she a wild somebody story. And like pretended to go on with her life. Yeah. And didn't go to jail. What the <laughs> fuck? Oh, so nuts. Anyway, yeah. so both of those things are on HBO. A thousand percent okay, me cool. growing up mixed and love and death about Candy Montgomery, I think is her, okay. name, her last name. So I have one. I haven't been watching a lot of content, but I okay. did catch a movie on the plane on oh. my way back and oh. I really enjoyed it. It's called 3000 Years of Longing. Have you watched it? No, I haven't even heard of it. Um, What the heck? What is this? <laughs> It's a story um, about a woman, and the woman is played by Tilda Swinton. Already love it. And she is, a, I think she's a professor, and she mm-hmm. goes to a conference in mm-hmm. Turkey, I think. And she mm-hmm. finds this bottle, and she opens it up, and a gin comes out, which is basically a genie, right? Uh-huh. And she gets three wishes. And the, oh. the gin is played by... 
I can never remember how his name is pronounced. Idris Al- Elba? Idris, is it? Oh, yeah. Idris, Idris Elba. Elba. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, uh, I love him so much. Me too. Another and, snack. <laughs> yeah, it was it was so good. I almost A cried on the plane. 3,000 oh, years of longing? 3,000 years of longing. 3,000 years of longing. Okay. Yeah. Oh, my God. I'm so on it. It's really good. Yeah, I enjoyed it. And There's a lot can... of different stories. I, I watched it on the plane, so I don't okay. know. I don't know where you can watch it. But okay, it came out in 2022, and according to the Googleisha, you can watch it on Peacock. Oh, cool, Peacock! Right Fantastic. On. I might All watch right. it again. It was that good. I'm gonna watch it right now. Yeah, <laughs> I can't do, wait. Do it. <laughs> So um, those are A Thousand Percent Me, Growing Up Mixed on HBO Max, and Love and Death on HBO Max, and 3,000 Years years of of Longing longing on Peacock. So, oh man, not sad. Okay. Well, it looks like we're (laughs) at the end of the show, everyone. In the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us until next time? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website, plus check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five-star review. Hell yeah! So <laughs> this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. respect anyway <laughs> oh it's my turn <laughs> i was waiting oh hi, Beth. Uh, hey, <laughs> oh my turn <laughs> so now we're, now we're getting i i've we've done this before right yeah um i i can't remember what i was gonna say but uh okay Okay. Damn, you looks good. Won't you back the thing up? You're a fine motherfucker. Won't you back the thing up? Call me Big Daddy when you back the thing up. And we're back. <laughs> wow, I really fucked that up. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's cool. It's cool. All right. All I have right. to let my dog out before she poops on my rug. Okay. Stanley, I can't figure out oh why, why, why you killed people. Stanley. <laughs> so, all right. See you all later, right. friends. See you on the internet. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>
And I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.